You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Grace. And hey, it's Chelsea. So today we are going to be talking about Barbara E. Miller. And for the life of me, I feel like we've talked about her before. Even though everyone's (laughs) told me no, I still like, I think that she might have been mentioned in one of our other cases that we'll talk about because her case sounds so familiar. But there's a lot of crazy stuff with the story. So we're just going to jump into it. When researching it, there were a lot of dates and it was really, really hard because I think we've mentioned before, we've, we use a site called newspapers.com. So I try, when I'm researching, I try to start from like the beginning on and I kept getting frustrated because I'm like, it was the same articles from the same source, their local newspaper. And they kept saying different dates and I was getting so pissed off. I'm like, why are the dates changing? But we'll get into that. A lot of the dates range between between June 30th and July 2nd of 1989, um, in the beginning of the investigation, her family knew she was supposed to be going to a wedding on July 1st, 1989. But like I said, in the beginning, they weren't sure if she went or not. Cause like back then we're not, they weren't in constant contact. Like we are now, it's not like a social media thing where you have to take a picture of everything you're doing in your life. So they just were not sure, but the case broke open. So we'll see along this huge timeline. Cause it's been forever since, you know, that has happened. It, it will go cold and then it'll be like hot again, then cold again. So in 2014, a picture emerged of her being present at that wedding that they were talking about. So it is presumed that she went missing that day for a very long time, but then they determined, the police determined that she went missing on the second Sunbury Corporal Deg Stark, who was one of the lead investigators for probably the longest amount of time on her case, because there's been a lot of people on her case. He said that she had to be in her home in the early hours of the second based on items that she had dropped off. Apparently there were items brought home from the wedding, such as flowers and her friends say the last time that they saw her was getting into a car with flowers specifically from that wedding. So when Barbara went missing, she was 30 years old and she was living in Sunbury, Pennsylvania. And I never heard of this area. It's just over an hour east of State College. And I was like excited because Sarah loves that area. (laughs) So she's not with us today. And at the time of her disappearance, she had a son named Eddie who was a teenager. He, I believe, is 14 at the time. And It was just so strange that she would disappear. She had also recently started working at Townsend Inc. in Hummel's Wharf, which I'm not really sure where that is, Um, but it's about 30 minutes, I believe, from where she was living. Her mother made the statement she was fine. She was enjoying her job and she thought there was room for advancement. She never gave me any indication whatsoever that anything was wrong. Joseph W. Mike Egan, which I'm confused because I don't know where Mike came from, honestly, out of of his (laughs) real name. Very random. Yeah. But I'm just going to call him by Mike, but just know that's not his like name on his birth certificate. He was living with Barbara and they had previously dated and articles say that they were, that they weren't like, it was kind of like hit or miss. It feels, I kind of feel like they were kind of an off again, on again type of situation, if you will. He was a former Sunbury police detective in the mid eighties. He was in state prison himself for extortion. Oh my God. Yeah. And to give a little like background on it, cause it's hilarious. When I was reading it, I was just laughing. I'm like, this is the dumbest guy I've ever heard of. 
There was a burglary of telephone company in Herndon, PA. There was approximately $31,000 in currency and coins that were like heisted, which I'm confused. Like, why do they have that much money on hand? Yeah, that's a lot, especially in the 80s. Yeah. Like, and I'm thinking like a telephone company, like providing like, like what you would think of today. Like, I guess Pico, like, why would they have money there? I don't, I don't know. Like, it confused me. That part confused me why they'd have that much money in there. But anyway. People paying their phone bills? It could be. But Maybe. To pay in cash? I don't know. Wouldn't checks be king back then? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> this is before know. our time. <laughs> this is true. But um, Mike ended up hearing about it. He is a police officer and it was not in his jurisdiction. But he became suspicious of a guy named Kenneth Merrill, and he questioned him about it. And Kenneth ended up admitting to the crime. Mike demanded to meet his partner in crime, Mark Bolig. He wanted to meet him because Kenneth had blown through all of his share of his money on drugs, but Mark still had roughly $5,820. pair of these guys meet him at his job. And it wasn't just like, oh, he was like on the clock meeting them at like a diner or somewhere, you know, not suspicious. He had to meet them at the station. He had these two guys meet him at the station to extort them. He basically said, hey, give me the rest of the money that you have from this burglary and I won't tell on you. And they came into the station and specifically asked for him. And there were tons of witnesses who said that they saw those two there, that they specifically asked for him. Wow. Yeah. And he was caught outside counting tons of money outside the station. Yeah. Good job, Mike. Yep. Mike had his first trial in November of 1981, but it was a mistrial. The case was then tried again on January 12th, 1982, where he was convicted on... He technically had six counts, but apparently the judge made, like, crazy comment during sentencing, and the, um, Mike's lawyers fought them on it, and it got knocked from six counts to five counts because of something he said. Hmm. And you don't know what it was that he said? No, I couldn't find the quote. Hmm. But... I believe he served six years and while he was incarcerated, he met Barbara and they started dating when he was released. And I'm just like, I don't get people who want to date people who are in jail. It makes no sense. I was just listening to an episode of And That's Why We Drink. And that's also the one that like Sarah's obsessed with. And they were just talking about and I can't remember the exact term for people that are basically turned on by people that have committed crimes. It's the weirdest thing. I will never understand. And it's not that uncommon. Oh, no. Apparently there's like a dating website where inmates, you know, that's people are looking to date. And I don't know. It blows my mind. Yeah, there's like multiple ones. Yeah. And like pen pal, um, like romantic pen pal relationships that get set up. It's nuts. They had so they had started dating when he was released. He was the one who reported her missing. He told police that he dropped Barbara off at a Milton bar on July 1st, 1989. She was supposed to be meeting with friends for drinks after the wedding of her best friend, Lori Wands. Eddie, who was her son, told police that his mother and Mike had gotten into a fight on June 30th, 1989, because Barbara wanted to attend the wedding alone. The day of the wedding, Eddie said a picture was missing and all the other ones were tilted along with a couch being moved slightly. And 
this was like after the wedding, like later that night. That's weird. Yeah. And he also told the police that the morning of July 2nd, Mike was driving his mother's car and the tires were covered with yellow clay that he summarized was related to concrete work. And now this is a kid, Eddie, who summarized that. I'm not really sure why. Like, I'd, maybe he saw that a lot or that was common around there. And Mike completely denies that he ever used her car. So then... You know, all this is happening and the case went fairly cold all the way up until September 18th, 2002. Sunbury police sent a search team to search a site in Lower Augusta Township in Northumberland County. They were specifically searching abandoned mines for her body. City police had reopened their investigation into Barbara's disappearance in June of 2002. And the mine system is known as... The Doty or Dowdy Mines, or also known as the Silver Vein Mines. And in an article in the Daily Item, they are de detailed as being located in a steep, wooded, and over 200-foot high rock embankment about 1.5 miles south of Sunbury, which is located near the railroad tracks. Stark, who again is like the lead investigator, called off the searches after four days because clothing remnants were found. And apparently this clothing, like 90% of the clothing that was found, it was found in one location, like kind of all together. So they took that as evidence for testing. In 2002, a Northumberland County president judge, Charles Saylor, declared her dead. This is due to the fact that Kim Zellers was brought in and she operated the White Deer Search and Rescue along with her husband and cadaver dog named Bullet. The dog had indicated that there was an odor of human decomp in the caves and there was potential evidence recovered, like we said, those clothing. Linda Miller, Barbara's sister, testified that the last time she saw her sister was in early June of 1989 during the school graduation for Stephen Page, who was Linda's son. Her final contact was a phone conversation about a week later. Linda said that they would typically talk weekly. Since she went missing, there has been zero contact, either between like phone or mail. Linda became the administrator of Barbara's estate, and she approved Stark's recommendation of having her be listed as deceased as of July 2nd, 1989, since police had previously had her listed as missing on July 1st. Ed Miller, who I think they kept changing his name. I think his name's Edward, but when he was younger, they called him Eddie. He's a grown okay. man. They call him Ed. <laughs> so it's still gotcha. her son. Yeah. So Ed Miller, Barbara's son, did not testify at the trial, but afterwards said that his mother was concerned about death threats she was receiving in the mail prior to her disappearance. Whoa. And, yeah. Which is kind of crazy. And the police knew about it. So it's not like she didn't tell anybody. Oh, we'll get so there. she reported it like she while did. she was before she was missing. Wow. Yes. Yep, and we'll get to that. Ed said the last time he saw her was the day before the wedding. Stark said that through recent interviews, they collected new evidence connected to those death threats. He also said that the case will now be reclassified as probably or suspected homicide instead of a missing persons case. And this would, in his theory, speed up crime labs analysis for future evidence because... We, I mean, we've talked about it before. Older cases usually get like the back burner compared to higher profile cases or newer cases. And I guess with him reclassifying her, maybe there would be more urgency to the testing. Sure. Who knows? Yep. I mean, I feel like it moves pretty damn slow even for newer cases. I don't know. Yeah, true. So Martha Stump is Barbara's or was Barbara's mother. She's passed away. And in 2003, she offered $5,000 for information regarding Barbara's disappearance. 
Martha presumes that she is dead, but she said to know what's happened would mean so much. In the same article for the Daily Item, she said, someone should pay for what happened to Barbara. Martha doesn't believe that Barbara would ever leave her son and never come back. Now, in 2008, there was a contractor doing work in Lithia Springs in Point Township at a house that Mike Egan Egon once rented. Bones were found under the home. And like I said, this case kind of goes in and out of being hot and cold. At the time, it was kind of on the back burner. But with these bones being found, it kind of, you know, pushed it into, I guess, headlines again. In 2005, when Stark retired from the Sanbury Police Department, um, that's when it got cold. But these bones then again, you know, kind of sparked it again. But it was later determined that the bones were actually cow bones, which I don't really know how you couldn't figure that out like immediately. Not. I just I imagine like a pile of bones would be suspicious, but um, I'm like if it was just a cow that that died at one point and was just kind of still there, wouldn't you see the whole cow? I don't. That's yeah. I don't know anything about anything, but same. <laughs> I just imagine I just, all of those bones would still be there. Yeah, I was kind of like confused. Yeah. That kind of confused me, but it was good for the case. Like, wow, this lady had huge thighs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like the bones have got to be huge. Yeah. Who knows, though? But like I said, it was really good for the case. Um, with, I guess, it being in the headlines again, they started receiving tips. In 2009, they received info from the former Sunbury chief, Steve Mazeo, that a home, which was 715 Front Street, was owned by Northumberland County Judge Sam Ranch. I think I spelled that wrong. I think it's supposed to be Reich. Ah. I could have. Who knows? Um, His name is Sam. I like Ranch. That's a great last name. (laughs) Me too. Um, Sam Ranch. But he, like, owned this property. But at the time of the disappearance, Kathy Rittenbach was renting it. And Kathy was Mike's sister. Interesting. Yes. And when Mazeo first got this information, he was told that there wasn't enough, you know, for them to get a search warrant. And it has been stated a lot that there's, like, I guess, corruption with this case. And that people are, I guess, covering it up. And there's questions because, like... This was this, um, you know, a person who worked in the police department. He owned this property is was because he owned it that he just didn't want it searched or maybe they didn't even want to do it because he maybe looked at himself. There's a lot of questions about that type of thing. Couldn't find anything like official, Mm -hmm. but even though this information was like brought back again in 2009, they still didn't have, I guess, enough to get that search warrant and then the case found its way back into the background again it fell back to being cold then we jump to 2016 tim miller became the chief of the sunbury police department and to note there is no relation with barbara just have the same last name miller is a very common last name very so he read over her case file and the address 715 front street was mentioned a handful of times stating that barbara Barbara's body could be buried there. Tim Miller believed that Barbara could be buried in the basement or encased in the walls. That's creepy as shit. It is. It is. It's 
freaks me out. There had been multiple statements from witnesses that Mike would get high on cocaine and drive by home in Milton to check on his old lady, which is weird. There was all. Yeah, it's creepy. But we see that all the time. Like when people commit a crime, they want to go back or they want to go visit, I guess, the body where it's laying, you know. Yeah. That's how people always find out because Mm -hmm. they're dumb and they go back. Yeah. It's like they cannot help themselves. It's weird. I watched something on Netflix. It's a new show like like Evil Neighbor or something like that. And the guy got caught because he Googled where he buried the body. That's how they found it. They had no idea where. And he Googled it once. And the police were like, let's just go look. Completely found it. Oh, my God. What an idiot. Thank God for stupid criminals. Yeah. And they had really nothing on him other than being the roommate. But that got him pretty good. But anyway, um, there's also a report from 2004 saying Egan put a body inside the wall of a home, which is like pretty damning. Yeah, I would say. So Tim decided to see if the new homeowners would let them look at the basement, which they did. And Tim said that they found highly suspicious construction, which I wanted to laugh because you work in construction now. What would you think highly suspicious (laughs) construction would be? I don't know. But now I, I don't. It's kind of funny because I automatically think of like. Silence of the Lambs, where he has that freaking like well in his basement uh, or that pit pit, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> but there was no pit. I feel like I feel like there are so many things that could be considered That's highly true. suspicious. That's true. But this also kind of makes me think of that case that I just did where the police ripped up the basement of oh, that couple. Yes. Because they um the parents of the guy they suspected had just moved out and sold it to that couple. And they're like, Oh, now we can finally get in there. Yeah. Check the basement. And they were pissed and the County never paid for it. But yeah, it's very similar. Yeah. So what he considered suspicious was a concrete floor that was added on with portions of what appeared to be hand mixed concrete per a linked CBS news article that we will have linked on our website. There was also a small room that Tim remarked was very peculiar. I can never say that word. Sorry. I just can't talk tonight and I can never really talk anyway, but anyway, (laughs) (laughs) but it had very thick concrete walls and an exhaust fan. And apparently I was like looking on Reddit too. And I didn't really understand it because I am not um, a construction person. These like thick um, concrete walls, they weren't like supporting walls. Like Mm -hmm. you could easily have to, they weren't, they weren't needed. That's why I guess he thought that it was strange. So they were there for, they had to be there for a pretty specific purpose. I mean, that sounds really weird to me, unless you had something very specific where they painting something in there. Like, why is there an exhaust fan? I'm just Some people on Reddit like said that maybe there was an exhaust fan for like the smell. Like, if they didn't yeah. put the body in the wall, I have no idea. But you went to the trouble to put in it, like, install an exhaust fan? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of questions, I guess, that they had. Yeah. It's weird, because I would feel that there would be a very specific purpose for that room that would be stated. Oh, and yeah. 
the fact that it's just like, what is this? Is it's weird. Oh, it is. It is. There was also another statement from an informant that said that one of Kathy Rittenbach's close friend, and again, this is her house, told someone that if they did not pay a drug debt, that they would end up just like Barbara Miller did in Kathy's basement. Like that's that's yeah, very specific, ominous, very. and <laughs> oh yeah, yikes. But with all of this information, Tim Miller was able to secure a warrant and alongside him, a team of contractors, police, and Jim Kelly, the Northumberland County coroner went to the home searching for Barbara's body in June, 2016. This excavation took a week. They removed walls and several tons of soil from the home. And I do, I did read in, I did read in another article, they took like a huge block or like the block of cement that I guess had like the hand mixed concrete or whatever. So they did take that. Then a couple weeks later on August 10th, 2016, Tim Miller, Sunbury Corporal Travis Brem Bremigen? Bremigen? and members of the forensic team served a sealed search warrant on Barbara's former home, which was 239 Penn Street. Then a day later, the same people ended up with search and rescue at a pond just outside of Lewisburg on Route 45. There they removed a large container, and another source said that it was kind of like one of those drums. Um, what are they called? Like an oil drum? Yes. Mm, it was mm. an oil drum. Um, Tim Miller wouldn't disclose what was in the container. He was only quoted as saying, we got what we were looking for. Huh. Yeah, that was in 2016. <laughs> a lot happened then. So then we moved to 2017. Um, Tim Miller specifically got Dr. Henry Lee of Connecticut and Dr. William Bass of Tennessee to join in the investigation. Now, both of these forensic scientists are pretty well known. Dr. Lee is known for his work on the OJ Simpson murder trial. And he was in an, another well-known case about, I believe she was like a flight attendant that went missing. Um, and he was on that one. And then Dr. Bass is known for his creation of the body farm located at the University of Tennessee. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they began testing all the evidence collected at the three locations that we just mentioned. Fall of 2017, Tim Miller announced that wood chips were located inside the walls that were removed from the home in Milton, which was where Mike's sister lived, like we said. So I do want to like stop on that. So when I say wood chips, all the articles that I found have them in quotation marks. And on Reddit, and I'll mention it again, I guess people from other countries who, who I guess don't like English is not their first language, assumed that like her body was chipped and put in the wall. Oh, yeah. And like, I guess maybe that makes sense because they just every article is in quotations and like they kept saying bone fragments. So, I mean, it's a possibility. Yeah, it's hard to understand what the significance of wood chips yeah would be if it's not explained yeah i couldn't find it like explained out by the police but every single mm -hmm. article even on like going through like the newspapers article every it was always in quotation marks like why would it need to be in quotation marks if they were wood chips yeah that's bizarre yeah i can't i don't know what to make of that neither do i i think it's weird um and then now we're going to jump into 2018. 
Tim Miller ended up leaving the department and Corporal Travis Bremigen takes over as the lead investigator. And I'm just confused. There's just so much turnover in such a short amount of time. I don't get it. Like, I feel like we talk about it a lot in other cases. Like, I just didn't realize, like, why? Why? Can they just not handle it? Or do they move to another another department? Or uh, maybe just because of, like, promotions? Yeah, maybe... I just feel like so much gets dropped. You spend so much time on a case and then someone new comes in and might miss it or they might see something new. I don't know. It just blows my mind. Yeah, I'm sure that affects it, whether it's positively or negatively. Blows my mind. But anyway, the officer in charge, Brad Hare, announces that Barbara's cold case investigation has been turned over to the state attorney general's office. And since then, there hasn't been any info released from either the Sunbury police or the attorney general's office though that same year 2018 the sealed search warrant from 2016 became unsealed and it shows that police believe she was killed inside her house in Sunbury after returning home from the wedding the warrant allowed police to remove the steps from the house on Penn Street so that's where she lived and the steps had shown evidence of a clump of hair and blood so they confirmed that they found basically found her body without saying as much. They kind said they of. found what they were looking for kind yeah. of cryptically and then didn't really give any more information. No. And a lot of people have reached out and asked both the police and the um, attorney general's office. And they they say that they don't have to release whether, you know, it's active or being worked on. and. It's just like, I know the family really wants closure and we'll get into it. There's a lot of people pushing for this, um, to kind of get solved. Good. Um, and there's so much evidence. It's just weird how it isn't at this point. It seems like they got a lot of evidence. It's kind of sad. Stain Mike Egan. We're not. We're going to talk about some fun stuff. He filed a lawsuit. So if you thought we were done with the chat is the local newspaper that was reporting on a lot of this. And it. And its parent company, Community Newspaper Holdings Incorporated, for defamation. And there are nine other defendants that are included in this suit. And he claims that the defendants falsely state he was responsible for the death of Barbara. The suit alleges four counts of defamation and one count of placing Egan... Egon in false light, violating his right to privacy. Egon is seeking $50,000 for each count, plus damages and costs of suit. He also tried to include Tim Miller in the suit, but a judge ruled that he was just doing his job and he is like required to let the community know of potential suspects. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. And I honestly could not. I tried searching because this was like right like before COVID and I haven't seen like a resolution of like if he won or not or anything. Um, okay. So I don't know. I know COVID has like made things way slower, but I mean, it's 2022, but I still, I, I couldn't find if it, where, where it is in this current moment. Hopefully it's just like, they're just like dredging it through the courts. Yeah. And cause what the hell? <laughs> Yeah, I'm just like, really, man? And honestly, like, we know he's a greedy motherfucker at this point. I mean, he extorted criminals for money. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's true. I just don't get it. So, like, why? Like, he's just, it's all about money. It's not even, like, doesn't even seem like it's about her or he really cares. It's just like he wants money. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Like, yep. ugh, gross. It's also interesting to note that Barbara was linked to the Penny Doe case that we have previously covered. Amy Dobbs, who is the regional director of NamUs, said she saw coverage of Barbara and entered her info into NamUs, and it had come back with four out of five stars matched to a potential missing person. And now they tested the DNA and it came back as not a match, but Penny Doe is still un- unidentified. And if, Grace, if you want to talk a little bit about it to jog some people's memories. Yeah. Um, gosh, I don't remember what episode this was, but it was quite a while ago. But um, Penny Doe was an unidentified unidentified woman uh, found in Clarion County and she was under if it jogs people's memories under the railroad trestle Um, she had severe injuries to one side of her body and it seemed like you know she had just been beaten on one side of her body but they're not exactly sure she was said to have been a young white woman between the ages of 15 and 22 and they called her Penny Doe because she was found with pennies in her pockets. Um, I think the only thing I really remember from the case is that two little girls were picking raspberries and found her. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Two children who were picking berries. And we had mentioned that a few previous stories, too, had talked about kids finding the bodies and how freaking awful that is. It's, it's always kids somehow that are like, yeah hunting or picking berries or playing it's so sad um but so i guess they were saying that penny doe could have been barbara apparently yeah i guess when there was like a lot of headlines um showing off barbara miller i guess um she was put in and she hit like four out of five of the categories that could potentially like be her Mm -hmm. um I don't know. I know she she was um, Barbara's white. I know Penny Doe was. I don't know if it's like maybe the weight, the height. Um, she was 30, but she looks fairly young. I don't know if you looked at any of her pictures. She looks young. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking um, at her picture right now. And she is like, I guess, described as being petite. So, I mean, she could easily be maybe confused for somebody that was younger i don't know yeah and i mean sometimes they estimate the ages of these jane and john does and, and it ends up accurate. being a little bit off yeah yeah so it um it did say that penny doe was estimated to be about five foot so you you did say she was petite um, yeah she is five foot four inches okay Gotcha. And then anywhere from between like 105 to 120 pounds. Yep. 125 pounds. So, yeah. But I mean, it was it determined. It, de- it was determined that it wasn't her through um, DNA, unfortunately, gotcha. because Penny Doe is still unidentified. Mm-hmm. So we will kind of jump into theories, even though there's really only one. I mean, other than Mike did it. But um, there are a lot of people. There is like another side of the story that goes with like the death threats. And it I mean, it is plausible. Yeah, I'm interested to hear about those. Yeah. So Tim Miller, the guy who was like the lead on it for, I think, the longest amount of time, believed that her death was linked to the 1986 drug related murder of Ricky D. Wolf. Ricky was blindfolded, handcuffed and beaten to death at Susquehanna River boat ramp north of Montandon. 
Pennsylvania names and towns are just yeah, it's rough. I'm not sorry. easy, even though we're natives. Yeah, it is alleged that Ricky was lured to the boat launching area because Thomas Yoder believed he was owed money for drugs. Five men ended up getting charged in the case. Robert Eugene Hummel was prosecution's witness. He pleaded guilty to third-degree murder, and he later claimed to have given false testimony, which resulted in the life sentences of two other defendants, Scott Robert Schaefer and William Lloyd Hendricks III. Scott says, my girlfriend got a phone call on her answering machine saying that Barb Miller had proof that I didn't do it and she was going to come forward and say I was innocent. Shortly after that, she went missing. And that's a direct quote from Scott. Scott has maintained his innocence and he served 17 years in prison. He got a new trial in 2006, which he pleaded guilty to, though he says he did not do it. He ended up getting released from prison with an agreement, which I'm assuming is the Alfred plead. Like, yeah, yeah, I didn't do it, but there's enough, I guess, probable cause. Um, Basically, yeah, just claiming, just pleading guilty to, yes, you know, lessen your sentence, but not, you're still claiming you're innocent. Yeah. Yes. And it's like crazy. Like, I didn't put a lot in here, but I'll mention some stuff that blows my mind. So uh, Ricky D. Wolf had a son. I can't remember his name because I, I didn't write it down. But this son believed Scott so much. He went to his trial where that he gave the Alfred plea and was on his side to get him out of prison. Oh, um, wow. Oh, yeah. And this poor guy, Scott, he was like, even though I didn't do it, I didn't even know him. He was like, I lost 17 years of my life. And he's like, I still can't do anything. I'm assuming he worked in construction because he made a quote. He was like, you know, I have all my friends ask me if I can help their kids like build construction for them. And he's like, it's like a punch in the gut because when I go to do my clearances, I can't do it because I guess he's still like listed as a felon, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Even though, which I think is crazy. So I guess he has a hard time finding certain work, which is just really crappy. And I just don't know why people give false testimonies. You're just ruining people's lives. Like not only was one person killed, you're ruining like two other people's lives and the lives of, of their loved ones or friends. It's really crappy. But Scott, you know, after he got released, he works really hard with Ed, Barbara's son, trying to find more clues, finding the body to bring him and his family justice, even though they're not related. He never met her before. The only time he's ever heard of her when she left that message, which is crazy. So he works really hard and he's really involved in the case of Barbara. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So Tim believed that she was killed in her home and then her remains were placed in the wall of a duplex in the 700 block of North Front Street. But it just confuses me because if you're playing into this, how does Mike play into that this part? Because we all know the 700 block of North Front Street is where Kathy Reinbach lived, who is Mike's sister. So was Mike a part of this? We do know that he does drugs. And this was like a drug related murder. So is Mike still involved, even though it's linked, possibly linked to this 1986 drug related murder? I couldn't find that. Like I could find either the drug related murder or Mike. I couldn't find them together. And I'm just see. And it confuses me because like in the drug related murder, it mentions this house again or this duplex. But that is connected to Mike. So I'm just like, are they all together or are they separate? I can't figure it out. So you're kind of left to just draw draw your own 
yes. connections and conclusions. Yeah. That's frustrating. It's very frustrating. Very frustrating. And I already mentioned the Redditor thing about the wood chips, so we won't mention it again. Barbara E. Miller was five foot four inches, 125 pounds, has light brown hair and brown eyes. She is a white female and described as having a medium build. Her date of birth is April 23rd, 1959. And according to the Doe Network, her dentals are available. If you have any information, please contact Northumberland County Sheriff's Office, 570-988-4155. That's all we have for this episode of Keystone Cold Cases Podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by Chelsea Brown. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. The music and production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.